0: It's always a joy to, to worship with you all. Would you join me in, in prayer? Father, we thank you
1: for your constant love for us. We thank you that you speak to us through your word, and we ask this morning that you would open up our hearts to receive what you have for us in, in your word as we engage it together. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, a, couple, a few weeks ago... I got a a text from a a buddy, old roommate of mine, asking if I was interested in seeing the band Coldplay while they were in town performing at Soldier Field. Oh, we got some fans. OK, I might be dating myself. And uh, it didn't work out. The timing, the, the timing wasn't good. Uh, but it got us reminiscing about the last concert we had gone to together, which was a Coldplay concert. It was over a decade ago uh, up in Wisconsin. And uh, I don't go to a lot of concerts, but this was, hands down, the largest musical event that I had ever been a part of. There were, I think, like 34,000 people at this concert. And it was one thing to listen to the songs that I knew, like, with my headphones, or in my car. It was another thing to enter into this musical experience with tens of thousands of people. And, and, and to have Chris Martin stop singing for a moment and turn it over to the crowd as we all finish the last lines of Fix You. And everyone's waving their, their, their cell phones in the air and their lighters, because people used lighters back then. And, and it was just this like, this amazing musical moment, this powerful moment that we were all entering into together. Music has this, this power to be able to, to synchronize us with one another. We see the way it does it bodily in dance, or you know, when you have a, cl- a crowd that, that can clap to a beat together. Some of us can do that better than others. It, it synchronizes us together. And actually, it can actually synchronize our minds with one another. Uh, A couple years ago, uh, in 2020, there was a, a Scientific American article that talked about a study where they found that if an audience was enjoying a musical performance, their brain activity would actually synchronize somewhat with the performers. Music has this ability to align our minds and our hearts and our bodies with one another. And every culture, every culture has language, every culture has music. God has designed us to be music makers and enjoyers of music. And so it's no accident that Christian worship and Jewish worship before that has always incorporated music. It's always been a part of our worship. In fact, in the middle of our Bible, right, if you just open up the Bible straight to the middle, you'll probably find the book of Psalms. And the book of Psalms is a songbook. It was originally written to be sung together as, as a congregation. Uh, and uh, Emmanuel Anglican is uh, this week kicking off a, a series on the Psalms. The Psalms are scripture, it, it is part of the Bible, it's div- divinely inspired, but it's scripture that is made to be prayed. It's made to be, well, actually sung together, but also prayed together. And they're not just any prayers, they are true prayers because they're inspired by God himself. What that means is that if we pray these prayers regularly, if we let ourselves marinate in their words, over time they begin to shape us. They begin to align our hearts and our minds and our bodies with the God who inspired them. Part of what the Psalms do for us is they offer us a ministry of reality. Historically, Christians have prayed the Psalms daily. And we have carried on the tradition of praying them together on Sundays. Because we go through our week and we are bombarded by competing visions of the true and the good and the beautiful. Competing visions of how we should live and how we should understand the world. And what the Psalms can help us do when we come together and pray them together is to align our vision of the world our vision of reality, with God's vision of the world. This morning we're going to look at Psalm 138, which is a psalm that we just prayed together. And this is the reality that this psalm invites us into. It's the reality that our exalted God exalts lowly people. Our exalted God exalts lowly people. First, we're going to talk about what it means that God is exalted. Then we're going to look at what it looks like to be lowly. And finally, we're going to talk about what it looks like for our exalted God to exalt lowly people. So what do we mean when we say that God is exalted? In verse 2 of the psalm, it says, I bow down toward your holy temple and give, you, give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. To be exalted is, or to say that someone is exalted is to say that they are great, they're wonderful, they're worthy of admiration and adoration. And so when we read this, that God has exalted his name above all things, usually when people exalt themselves, we take that as a negative thing, right? Like growing up, one of the classic movies of my childhood was Disney's Beauty and the Beast, more fans and uh, so you may have seen the original or maybe maybe the more recent remake um, but there is a, a character in, in Beauty and the Beast he's more or less the villain his name is Gaston and yeah, uh, not fans of Gaston uh, and, and he is he's he's proud okay handsome rugged athletic all of those good things but he's full of himself and he, he tries unsuccessfully to woo, and then um, and he wanted to marry the, the female protagonist, Belle. And she turns him down, and he's crestfallen. He's sitting in the tavern by himself, and his buddy Fou comes over. And he doesn't want to see Gaston sad, so he starts singing this song about how amazing Gaston is. And the whole, the whole village joins in in the tavern about how amazing Gaston is. And eventually Gaston joins in about how amazing he is. And you don't like him. You're not supposed to like him. He's he's self-centered. He can't imagine a world in which all the women of the town aren't just pawing over him and worshiping the ground that he walks on. He's a narcissist. Without context, it might be how God comes across in Psalm 138. right? He literally wants everyone to sing his praises. He has exalted his name above all things. Is God a narcissist? Some people think so. I had a, an acquaintance, uh, um, someone I knew in college, who is now a spiritual coach. Um, he, he's, not a, he's not a Christian, but this is what he, what he says about God. He says, Western religions have made narcissism a virtue through the worship of God, who bears all the markers of a narcissistic personality disorder. According to the DSM, narcissists are often preoccupied with fantasies of unlimited success, power, brilliance, beauty, or ideal love. God titles himself king of kings, lord of lords, and describes himself as the perfection of all traits, all powerful, all loving, all knowing, all present. This massive self-valuation surely corresponds to an equally massive low self-esteem and a God-sized trauma behind it. What my friend has done here is he's taken, what he what, what would you do if you had a buddy, if, if your friend Joe said that he was exalting his name and his word above all things. You would be right to be concerned about Joe. You'd be right to think that maybe Joe has some kind of mental disorder. A mental disorder is what we call it when someone's perception of themselves or perception of the world around them and the way they engage with the world around them doesn't correspond with reality. So imagine if I were to say to you that um, I've, I've been suffering with intrusive thoughts of impending doom and my my heart rate has been elevated and and I'm sweating a lot, you you might think, okay, you you might be concerned for me reasonably that I might be suffering from some kind of anxiety disorder unless I was being chased by a bear. Because if I'm being chased by a bear, then the the, the feelings of impending doom are absolutely rational and my heightened mental and emotional and physical state would be aligned with the reality that my life is in danger. It's only a mental disorder if there's no bear, if the reality is that I'm safe, and yet I'm still in a heightened state. The reason my spiritual coach friend thinks God is a narcissist is that while he doesn't say that God doesn't exist, he doesn't accept that God is, in fact, in reality, all-powerful, all-loving, all-knowing, all-present. If he actually believed those things about God, it wouldn't seem narcissistic for God to say those things about himself any more than it would be narcissistic for an Olympic gold medalist to to say that they're at the top of their sport in the world. Because it's just true. And I think most of us aren't concerned about whether God's a narcissist. That's, That's not our pressing concern. But I I do think that sometimes what happens is, in our minds, we accept that God is all-powerful and all-loving and and all-present and all these things. But sometimes it doesn't trickle down into our daily lives. And so we live our lives as if God is not, in fact, exalted. We live with the anxiety that he might not provide for us. We know he's all-powerful, but but what if he doesn't provide for me? I know he's all-loving. I know that God forgives. But I feel all this shame, and I feel like I I, I can't bring that to God. And so I, I, I need to posture myself as someone who's extra holy. We live as if God is himself an imposter. Part of what the Psalms do for us is they give us this ministry of reality, and they ground us in who God actually is. Among all of the spiritual powers and things that people worship, so-called gods, we proclaim in the Psalms that he is the one who is worthy of worship, the one to whom we bow down, to whom we give our allegiance. Among all of the political powers, all of the kings, who assert their authority and dominion over us, God is our ultimate king. We assert that together as we say the Psalms. Now, for, for people, when I say that a person is exalted, that status is based on achievement, right, or position, or something, something that they've done, or some feature that they have. No one's slick as Gaston. No one's quick as Gaston. No one's neck is incredibly thick as Gaston, right? These are all things we say about Gaston, describing him. Not so with God. Remember, God is not Gaston. He's not a narcissist. When we say that God is exalted, his exalted status is more intrinsic than that. Notice it says that he's exalted his name. Above all things, what is the name of God? When God revealed his name to Moses, what did he say about himself? I am. I am that I am. He is the source and the pinnacle of all existence. He's the only one who has always existed. And everything that exists and everything that is, that is of worth or value proceeds comes from him. He says he's exalted his word above all things. We might think about the Bible. Um, it's not exactly right to just equate God's word with the Bible. It, it, there's a little more to it than that. Our word, right, our language is the way that we affect our will on the world. And God's word is the way that he affects his will on the world. In fact, it's by his word that all things were created. And it's by his word that he continues to govern and work in the world that he created. And so when we say that God's word is exalted above all things, we're saying that he is the one who orders all things, and he defines reality. That's why it's so important as we enter into the ministry of the Psalms, we want to see the world through God's eyes. We want to align our worldview with God's worldview. And then we have, it doesn't say it here in the Psalms, but it's pointing to one who is called the exalted word later in the New Testament, Jesus, who is the full revelation of God's word. He's the word of God who took on flesh, took on humanity, and he showed us what it's like to live in God's world. He showed us who God is and continues to show us who God is and how we can have a relationship with him. And we celebrate Jesus every week. We make a big deal about Jesus because he is God's exalted word, exalted above all things. So why do, we, why do we celebrate this? Why do we keep saying that God is so great, God is so great, God is so great? It's not because God needs our praises to stoke his ego. Rather, by celebrating God's greatness, we, along with the psalmist, are proclaiming reality. We're joining in the reality-defining work of the psalms. And the reality that is proclaimed here is that to believe in the God of the Bible is to believe in an exalted God, who is above all things and beyond anything we can comprehend. And we have to start there. Or what I say next
0: is going to be disturbing. God is exalted, and people are lowly.
1: That feels a bit off, right? Like, isn't Christianity supposed to dignify people? It feels almost, and and, and Christians have been accused of this, of kind of encouraging low self-esteem. That's not what we're trying to do here. In fact, we believe that people are of profound value. Remember that the Psalms offer a ministry of reality, right? Well, one of the realities that, that we see again and again in the Psalms is that any worth or value that people have, and we do have great value, but anything we're able to accomplish is subordinate to, is less than, and derivative of comes from the value and ability of the one who created us. So, for example, God's made us creative, right? We can create beautiful music, but what we're actually doing is we're manipulating the things that God already created, tone and rhythm, and we're manipulating them in unique ways to to produce something new out of what God has already created, or the strength that we have. We're using the energy that comes from the systems that God has already set up in place to affect change in the world and to do good things and to do great things. Our value and our ability is is derivative of God's value and his ability. And so to say that we're lowly is not a slur. That's not what I mean to say. What What I'm saying is that in the order of the universe, we are less than God. That's how it should be. That is the order of the universe. The problem, though, is that we don't always accept the order of the universe. That's what sin is. It's a disorder. I talked about how a disorder was how the way we see ourselves and the way we see the world around us doesn't correspond to reality. That's what sin is. Our ancestors, millennia ago, did this. When they thought that they knew better how to govern their lives, that they knew better what they needed, than their creator. We've had that same tendency ever since. This this temptation to be haughty or narcissistic in relation to the one who created us. And here's the problem with that, why it's so dangerous. Because when we reject the reality of God as the exalted one, and the reality that we are people who depend on him, what happens is that we actually hamstring our ability to have a real relationship with him. It's a bit like this. Uh, My my, uh, kiddos, uh, especially my oldest, love stories. And so we've read them, and she's listened to it since on audiobook many times, The Chronicles of Narnia. And The the Magician's Nephew is a story, kind of an analogy of of, of the creation story. And there, there are these two children who are sent to go get a fruit from a tree. And this fruit is supposed to bring healing and blessing and protection. And they come to this garden. And the garden is surrounded by a wall, and there's a gate. And there are clear instructions that one must only go through the gate. And so they go in to find this fruit of blessing. But there's an antagonist. There's a villain, a queen, who she thinks she's too good to listen to the instructions at the gate. She climbs over the wall, and she goes and finds the same fruit. For these children, this fruit becomes a source of blessing, not just for them, but for the whole world. For her. It becomes a curse because she didn't relate in the right way to the garden. That's kind of what happens to us. It's like God is like a king who has opened the gates of his palace, welcomed anyone into his throne room, to his banquet hall to feast with him, even sent his son to go find us. And when we reject our place in his created order, what we're doing is we're standing outside of the gate and demanding that he come and meet us on our own terms. We're trying to relate to God as a peer, but he's nobody's peer. Psalm 138 says, in verse 6, it says, For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. There's some proximity language
0: here. He regards the lowly. He sees the haughty from afar. Have you noticed in the Gospels who Jesus spends all his time with? It's with the lowly of society,
1: the people who are outcasts, the people who had no status. And it's not, when I say lowly, it's not that they're actually of less worth because they're not. They're creatures just like any other creature. But when we are lowly, we actually recognize where we stand in relation to God. And people who have been stripped of, stripped of power, stripped of resources, can actually see sometimes more clearly than those who have not been stripped of those things, how much they really depend on their creator. I didn't know when I was preparing for this that it would be, um, and we'll I think talk about this a bit later, but Refugee Sunday. And we've got some folks from Exodus World Services who are talking um, about the work that they do. God has a special place in his heart for the sojourners, for those who are cast out of their land, for the wanderers. Because they recognize that their source of, 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 if they if they recognize, if they've previously thought of their, their cultural identity or the place that they came from as their source of value, that's been stripped from them. And they find themselves relying. the mercy of the Lord,
0: I think we would do well to learn from them, to welcome them, to let them
1: teach us that we too are sojourners who rely on the Lord. God is nobody's peer, but he is a good father.
0: He hears our prayers. He listens to our pains. He wants to have a relationship with us. Which brings us to why it's such good news
1: that God is exalted and that we are lowly. And that's because our exalted God exalts lowly people. Some of us might struggle with the thought of a relationship with God, even the idea of God as Father. because uh, So today's Father's Day. Uh, Congratulations to all the fathers. We're thankful for you. But for some of us, Father's Day is hard, right? For some of you, you have had fathers who have not well reflected God as a father. You may have had fathers who have abused their authority. Maybe you've had other leaders in your life who have abused their authority, whether political or social. And so the thought of a relationship with a God who has all the power might feel a little bit scary. See, what happens is people abuse power because we're not exalted, because we want to be exalted. We have unmet needs, and often when when people are tempted to abuse power, it's because they have unmet needs that that they're trying to meet through their power and their resources and so forth. Here's the difference with God. God doesn't need anything from us. He's already exalted. He doesn't need his creatures to add to his glory. God is the only one who is absolutely free from the temptation to abuse his power. We can't even say that about the angels. One interpretation of of, of the story of, of the devil in the Bible is that he was an angel who rejected God's authority because he wanted more. He wanted to be exalted. We can't even say that about the angels, but God is never tempted to abuse his power, because he doesn't need anything from us. And what's more, he delights in giving from his abundant resources to anyone who asks. And when we recognize our lowliness, when we recognize our need for him, what happens is we put ourselves in the perfect position to receive from him and to be lifted up. The psalm that we read is full of examples of the way that God exalts the lowly. We're going to go through a survey real quick. Look at verse three. On the day I called, you answered me.
0: We might feel like we don't have a voice. We might feel
1: helpless. But when we call to God, he answers us. He answers prayer, not like a genie where we give him a list of demands and he fulfills them exactly as we ask them. He answers them like a father who sees what we need and hears the deepest cries of our heart and gives us exactly what we need. He answers our prayer. Reading on in verse 3, it says, My strength of soul you increased. Our exalted God gives strength. Sometimes what he does is instead of changing our circumstances, he actually changes us. He gives us the interior resources we need to make it through a crisis. Or sometimes he even uses the crisis that we're in to strengthen our souls for this future crisis that we didn't even know was coming. I think of Joseph who was sold into slavery and imprisoned and all the while God was preparing him to save not only the nation of Egypt, but his own family in Canaan. Our exalted God gives strength. Our exalted God protects and delivers. Look at verse seven. Though I walk through the mid- in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies and your right hand delivers me. Knowing David, the one who wrote this psalm, he was probably thinking of actual enemies who were trying to kill him. Most of us don't have that, but that's not to say that we don't have enemies. We have enemies of our soul, temptation from without and from within. We have societal and cultural forces, forces of injustice or of of licentiousness. And especially as parents, we're, we're looking at the world that we're raising our children in, and it seems like the odds are stacked against my kids growing up to know and love Jesus and to live as a child of his kingdom. And I have a choice. I can either get combative, right? I can get anxious, or I can believe what it says here that our exalted God protects and, delivers, and I can trust him with my children while also taking reasonable steps to disciple them in the faith. Our exalted God gives us purpose.
0: Verse 8 says, the Lord will
1: fulfill his purpose for me. We weren't designed to just find a job to make money. It's great to have a job that makes money. We weren't designed to just have the job that makes money so that then we can go home, find some things we like to do. Um, go to bed, and then start it all over the next week. God has given us purpose. He's created us as children of his kingdom and give us, given us the ability to begin to live out the values of his kingdom in our world. To love those who are lowly. To love those who are haughty, that need to know where they stand in relation to their creator. To, to seek justice. To love mercy to walk humbly with our God. He gives value to our lives. And not only that, but he fulfills our purpose for us. He helps us. He works through us to fulfill the purpose that he's given us.
0: And finally, I love this one. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. Elsewhere,
1: the Lord says, I will never leave you, nor will I forsake you. He's with us. He doesn't just exalt us from afar and say, oh, yeah, you guys have dignity. He comes near to us. He meets us at the table.
0: He shows his love for us every day.
1: This is amazing, what God does for us. But it doesn't end there because this psalm actually points us to the exalted word of God that we see revealed in the Gospels. And that exalted word was the descendant of the one who wrote this psalm, Jesus himself. He was the second person of the Trinity, God himself, who took on our humanity. Do you get that? God actually brought us into his own life. He didn't become less. He made it possible for us, if we trust in Jesus, to be part of a new humanity that actually participates in the life of God. There's a prayer that uh, in some traditions is prayed when the water is added to the wine um, that that, that we uh, partake in at, at Eucharist. And the prayer goes like this. By the mystery of this water and wine, may we come to share in the divinity of Christ who humbled himself to share in our humanity. How much more exalted can you get than sharing in the life of God and having his spirit dwell in us?
0: what if we lived like this were true? What if we lived like this song were true? As if we really believed that God was exalted. How would that change the way that we spend our time? The way we spend our money?
1: Perhaps we would spend more of our money on those whom God cares so much about. How would it change the way that we relate to one another if we truly believe that God exalted the lowly, how to change our opinion of ourselves and our need to, to posture? How to change the way we interact with our coworkers, even the ones we don't like? Or the man on the street who every day asks us for money or our
0: children? How to change our view of vocation?
1: I've been thinking about vocation because I'm kind of in transition. And I gotta say that it's really easy for us to find our sense of worth from what we do. And I don't just mean jobs, that can be motherhood, fatherhood, it could be your career. Some of you may be discerning a call into ministry. This is real tricky because there's a real temptation in ministry of of using ministry to meet one's own unmet needs for affirmation or for control. Right? I'm standing up here and you're listening to the things that I'm saying. And if I'm coming at that from a place of needing to have needs met, it can really corrupt a ministry. Few things destroy a church as quickly as a leader who's filling unmet needs. And so if you are seeing your vocation as a place where you are going to, uh, to find your sense of worth, that can be really destructive. But this psalm is so liberating. Because that doesn't have to be where we find our worth. It liberates us from perfectionism. It liberates us from clinging to status. It frees us to be creatures in the world that God made, knowing that he will lift us up, he will exalt us, that our status before him is that of beloved son and beloved daughter. It frees us to come as lowly people
0: with open hands before our exalted God. Would you please pray with me? Father, we thank you that you exalt us, that you are the
1: one who gives us our sense of worth and identity. I pray for anyone here today who has been struggling with that, who has been wondering if they are enough, who has been struggling with their, 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 their status, struggling with the work that they're doing, struggling with whether they're a good enough mother or father or leader.
0: Lord, I pray for your ministry of reality
1: over us this morning. Pray for anyone who maybe maybe doesn't even know that they have been setting themselves up as your peer, believing that you know better than us
0: what we need. Lord, we pray for your ministry of
1: reality open our hearts, open our hands to receive our dignity and our value and our worth from you and you
0: alone, that we might be exalted in you. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, the exalted one. Amen.